turn with me to Joshua chapter 2 this morning as we continue to journey through this book and journey and how God calls us to be strong and courageous to enter into His promises. Last week we looked at Joshua's charge, the charge that God gives to Joshua to be strong and courageous to enter into the promises of God being equipped with His Word, being guided by the presence of God, and here we see the story begin to develop. Come to Joshua chapter 2. Here's how it, what, is, what is recorded. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, and I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly. For you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I, knew, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, Our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, And deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you. And they hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect respect to this oath of yours that that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house into your house, your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. 
But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord into the window. And they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. Then they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the inhabitants into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Father, we do pray that your spirit would teach us For you have given us your word specifically, deliberately, and intentionally, that we might see you, know you, and hear your word, believe it, and act. So, Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would do that in us today. We pray in your son's name, amen. When we come to a story like this in Scripture, the question that we need to be asking is, what is the point of this story, and what is the author intending to communicate here? And not to get distracted by side issues. In particular, in this passage, not to get distracted by side issues, like, why are the two, sp- two spies at the house of a prostitute? The simple answer to that question is, they needed a place to get lost. Now, some people here... Some people, not necessarily here, some people try to temper down Rahab's occupation. But the Word of God doesn't. And the two of them go to the place that they are least likely to be asked embarrassing questions. They are on an undercover intelligence operation. And when Rahab reports to the king that the two men left as likely as they came, left as quickly as they came, he seems to accept that as normal. So we didn't need to get distracted by that one. We don't need to get distracted by that one. And similarly, also not to get distracted by the question here of what about Rahab's lie and deception? Because when we come to Scripture, particularly in narrative stories of Scriptures and historical accounts, there is a difference between what the Word of God reports happens and what the Word of God commends. And in this passage, what is being commended is that the emphasis here is on Rahab's faith. Now, when we come to this story, every commentator of Scripture, when it comes to Joshua chapter 2, highlights that this story is irrelevant to the book of Joshua. This story is irrelevant to the flow of what is happening in the book of Joshua. Joshua is about the people of God who have been led out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now God, who has, has partially fulfilled some of his promises that they would be a nation, that he would give them a great name, He is now fulfilling the rest of it that they would have a land where they would have prosperity and security. And this story about Rahab is irrelevant as to to whether or not the Israelites inherit the land. And in order, irrelevant to the flow of the narrative. And what everyone identifies then is that though it is irrelevant to the flow of the narrative, it is deliberately put in here. It is deliberately included. Now, the book of Joshua 
is a book about the formation of the nation of Israel, of them gaining the land, of, them, of their national identity, and what their national identity is to be founded upon. And what the story of Rahab emphasizes is that their identity, and that the identity of the people of God must be based upon faith and not upon anything else. And the author includes the story to make a point. And the first is this, is that we would understand the mission of God. Consider how unlikely it is for Rahab to be someone who puts her faith in the Lord. First off, Rahab is a Canaanite. What that means is that she was a Gentile. That means she was not a Jew. Scripture would say that she'd be one who was a foreigner to the covenants of the promise. She would be without hope and without God in the world. And not only was Rahab a Canaanite, but far worse, she was an Amorite. Now, the Canaanites was a term, an inclusive term to describe the people in this area. And the Canaanites included the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, that whole group of people is oftentimes linked together as the Canaanites. But Rahab is not only a Canaanite, there is something far worse, is that she is an Amorite. And it is the Amorites who were the worst people of this entire group of Canaanites. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 16, it says, when God tells his people um, that they will return to the land of, of the land of Palestine after the fourth generation, and they will do so when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. That the reason why the Canaanites as a group are being judged and judgment is coming upon them is in particular because of the sin of the Amorites. So it's bad to be a Canaanite. It's worse to be an Amorite. It's kind of like this. It's bad to not be a fan of the Washington Redskins. It is far worse to be a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. Amen? Amen. Right? It is bad to be a Canaanite. It is far worse to be an Amorite. Not only that, but she lived in Jericho. Jericho was a mighty fortress, had huge walls. It had stood for hundreds of years up to this point. And up to this point, it had defended not only the Amorites, but it defended a monolithic mentality, a worldview that exalted tribal gods, fertility cults, that included the sacrifice of children and their worship practices. And she is a resident of Jericho. And there she is, as a Canaanite, not only a Canaanite, but an Amorite, not only an Amorite, but an Amorite who is living in Jericho. There she is in the midst of the eating and drinking and business and battles. There she is conducting her business as a prostitute in the lowest levels of society, one who is immoral, unclean, one who is a threat to marriages and families. Rahab is a harlot living in a heathen land. And yet, consider the mission of God. Yet, Rahab has heard of the Lord. And Rahab has heard of the mighty acts of God. And Rahab has heard and has come to believe. She says in verse 9, 
when she says to the spies, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I have heard, and I have heard, and I have come to believe. You see, this is actually the normal way of faith. Faith comes through hearing. Faith comes through hearing of the mighty acts of God. Seeing the actions of Christians and well-meaning people is not enough. There are words that need to be necessary. Faith comes through hearing. Well, what was it that she had heard about the mighty acts of God? Verses 9 through 11 tell us. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts were melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So she had heard of the Lord. And she says that repeatedly. But let me ask you a question just to observe. How had Rahab heard? How had Rahab heard of the mighty acts of God? How did this prostitute living in the city of Jericho, who was an Amorite of the Canaanites, how had she heard? Well, most likely she had heard because of visitors to her establishments. And one visitor comes in and he says, you know, did you hear what happened in Egypt? Did you hear about the Nile, how it was turned to blood? Did you hear about the flies that overtook the land? Did you hear about the frogs and the boils? Did you hear about how the firstborn were killed? And then another visitor would come in and say, and not only that, did you hear about the Red Sea? Their God, the God of the Jews, the Jewish God parted the Red Sea. They walked through on dry land. And after they walked through, the entire army of Pharaoh was swallowed up. And a third person in the establishment comes along and says, yeah, not only that, but they're still around. And in fact, they eradicated Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorites, on the either side of the Jordan River. Faith comes from hearing about the mighty acts of God. Now, sometimes people object to Christianity, and the objection goes along the lines of this. They say, well, you know what? You're only a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. And because you were raised in a Christian home, that's why you became a Christian. If you were raised in a Muslim home and raised by Muslim parents, you would have been raised a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever else. Rahab testifies the opposite. Because God ensures that those who are his hear of him and hear of his acts and believe. Rahab was a harlot in a heathen land who hears of the mighty acts of God and hears them and believes them. You see, God has determined that his mission to reconcile peoples to himself extends to the ends of the earth and it meets people in the most unexpected places. Yes, it is absolutely necessary that we send missionaries out to the ends of the earth that the truth of God may be proclaimed. But what missionaries repeatedly find when they arrive in a new place is that God has already been at work there for years, if not decades before. But you see, for Rahab, Rahab was not the only one who had heard of the mighty acts of God. But she was the only one who had responded in faith. She was not the only one who believed that the stories about the God 
of the Jews were true. But she was the only one who committed herself to the Lord, whereas everyone else resisted him and decided to um, be entrenched against him. And it's because of Rahab who hears the word of the Lord and hears about the mighty acts of God and in turn submits herself to them and believes in them and trusts them that Hebrews in the hall of fame of faith commends her. And they say, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's bring this to Southern Maryland. Some of you or some people have been trapped in darkness and have been trapped in a world of sin. Some, maybe you, have been surrounded by what appears to be the impregnable fortress of naturalism that says, you know what, I'm only going to believe what I can see and touch with my own hands. And yet for some reason you find yourself here this morning. That like Rahab, you have, you have heard of the mighty acts of God and for some reason it resonates within you. And for some reason that though you hear the word of God and there is a burning in your soul to know more. That you live this life and there is this gnawing aching and you look around and you say, there has got to be something more. There has got to be something greater. And so you have come here this morning. And it is no accident that you are here today. For it is God who is on a mission. God who is pursuing after you so that you would hear of the mighty works of God and that you would respond in faith. This becomes clear when, this, when we see how this text shows us not only about the mission of God, but also what it teaches us about the might of God. You see, Rahab gives an incredible declaration of what she has heard. She says, I know that the Lord, I know, I have come to believe, I have heard and I have believed, I know that the Lord has given you the land for the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's an incredible declaration for a Canaanite, for an Amorite woman. She says, I know that he is God, that there is, that he is God, that he is the supreme God, if not the one God. He is the God of heavens above and the earth beneath. He is not a tribal deity. He is not a God of fertility or rain or harvest or war or etc. Because the Canaanites had hundreds and hundreds of, hundreds and hundreds of different gods and idols that they worshipped and that they kept with them in order, to, in order to protect themselves, in order to give a favor to the God, whatever one that they're appealing to. Personally, this is my favorite Canaanite God. You've got to like this guy. It's difficult to see in the picture, but you've got to like this guy. First off, he's got the bling. I mean, he's gold, right? This was dug up from the land of Canaan around the time. Not only that, though, but what I really like about this guy is he's got a chin strap. You can barely see this. Like, he's got a chin strap, a soul patch. He's also got a little gangster mustache going on, like pencil line gangster mustache going on. I mean, this is actually what they dug up. There is nothing new under the sun, right? But Rahab knows that the God of the people of Israel is not a tribal deity. And she asserts that Yahweh is the only God who is functioning in the heaven above and the earth beneath. And Rahab knows that as a harlot living in a heathen land, that she is under the judgment of God. And Rahab knows 
that there is an ensuing military conflict, and she knew, as did all the residents of the town, that if the Jews overcame the city, there would be absolutely no prisoners, and they would all be eradicated. And if they had the opportunity, that their people would do the exact same thing to the Jews if they had the chance. And she also knew that she was an Amorite, and as an Amorite, that she should fight to the death for her place and for her people. But she also knew that she is one who stands under the judgment of God, and there is no extra credit for loyalty to wickedness. So what happens is that what Rahab has heard is that her belief becomes faith. Rahab's belief becomes faith. Faith is the act of commitment on the part of a believer, as one scholar puts it. Let me state that again. Faith is the act, an action. It is the act of commitment on the part of a believer. You see, Scripture makes this distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge, that you can believe things in your head, you can assent to truths, but they don't make any difference to you until they take residence in your heart and take over your heart. And so what Rahab has done is that Rahab has heard these truths. She has believed these truths. Other people believe the truths too. But she believed these truths and she acts on these truths and her faith, her belief becomes faith. Because what Rahab does, she hides the spies. She deceives the guards. She ties the scarlet rope in her window. She gathers everyone into her household with no doubt that if she was discovered for what she had done, she would most likely be horribly tortured, she and her family, and then publicly executed. And yet she risked everything because her belief had become faith. Her belief had turned into an action and had become faith. You see, this is exactly what James commends her for. In the book of James, James commends two people for belief that becomes faith. James commends Abraham when he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And this is in the passage where James is saying that you're not justified by faith, but, but faith, faith and works, faith that is acting itself out, that is demonstrating itself, that is manifesting itself, faith that acts on what is claimed to be believed. So James commends Abraham, well, of course, he's Abraham, and James commends Rahab. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and she sent them out by another way? Is that faith is believing this knowledge about God, knowledge about God, hearing that is necessary, but then acting upon that belief. Now, what is stunning here? in the book of Joshua, is that the very first person who is strong and very courageous to enter into the promises of God is not Joshua, is not any of Joshua's soldiers, but the very first person in the book of Joshua who is strong and courageous to enter into the promises of God is Rahab, a harlot living in a heathen land. And after she takes this action for a period of time, she stood... For the unseen, she stood upon her beliefs against what she could see. She was standing in an impregnable fortress. 
She stood as one in acute danger until she was rescued by Joshua and the spies. She stood alone in faith against the total culture surrounding her. Quite frankly, that's something that none of us in the West has ever had to do or has ever yet had to do. You see, being a Christian is not simply about belief, but it is, it, 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 but it is about faith. It is belief that turns into action. It is belief that expresses itself by a changed life. You see, when I was, for many years, I was really good with this idea of believing, you know, believing the truths of Scripture. I had incredible knowledge of them, but it didn't transfer into my life. And it wasn't until one day that I was sitting in high school in my basement that a close friend of mine says to me, and he says to me, you know what, Walt? He says, you need to either, you need to either stop calling yourself a Christian or you need to change the way that you're living because you are making my witness more difficult by the way that you are living your life and calling yourself a Christian. And after I picked my jaw up off the ground, I said, you're right. You're right is that I have this belief that I assent to, but that makes no difference in my life. And that's why our belief needs to turn into faith, belief that is being acted upon. And what this means is that for some people, for some Christians, some alleged Christians, what this means is that you need to stop play-acting as Christians, is that you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and act on what you claim to believe. And you need to act that what you claim to believe is actually true and to live according to it. This becomes even more clear when we see not only what this passage tells us here about the mission of God and the might of God, but what it tells us about the mercy of God. You see, Rahab says to these two spies, she says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will deliver our lives from death. What a shocking statement. And it must have been shocking because of what she says here. You see, there's this scene in the movie The Pirates of the Caribbean. And uh, in the Pirates of the Caribbean, there's this Disney movie with Jack Sparrow and the Black Pearl, the swashbuckling tale, right? And and Elizabeth Turner, who is the heroine of the story, is that uh, Captain Barbosa and his and his uh, pirates attack and they capture and they attack they capture Elizabeth Turner. And as soon as they capture Elizabeth Turner. They grab her aboard and Pintel, he's the guy on the left and the other guy whose eyeball keeps falling out if you've seen the movie. As soon as they, as soon as they grab hold of her and they grab her and they bring her on the, on the ship and they're about to do her harm and chop off her head or whatever else, Elizabeth Turner shouts, she shouts, Parley! Parley! I invoke the right of Parley! And they look at her, and she says, According to the code of the brethren set down by the pirates Morgan and Bartholomew, you have to take me to your captain. And they look at each other, and they say, I know the code. And she says, If an adversary demands parlay, you can do them no harm until, they, until the parlay is complete. 
And they're completely, utterly shocked that this non-pirate knew the term parlay. What shock must have come upon these two spies as this Rahab invokes two terms that make them stop in their tracks? Is that first off, what Rahab says to them is that she calls upon the name of the Lord. And you see this in your biblical text, and whenever you see this in all caps, that is an indication that the word that's being used there is Yahweh. That is the word that God gave to Moses, that when Moses said, who shall I tell you sends me, and Moses says, and God says to them, God says to Moses, you know, my name is Yahweh, I am who I am, I am who I always will be. And Rahab repeatedly calls upon the name that is uniquely the God of the people of Israel the God of covenant faithfulness, the God who has delivered them and whose name wasn't used until he delivered them out of Egypt and carried them into another promised land. The second term that she uses is she says to them, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. You see, the word here for Lord in this one dealing kindly, the word for dealt kindly is this Hebrew word hesed, which is a word that in your reading scripture, when you come across this, it is an indicator. It is loaded. And what hesed is, is it refers to God's mercy. It refers to his loving kindness. It refers to his steadfast love that goes from generation to generation. The love that never swerves and never gives up and never abandons them. And so you have to imagine the look on the spies' faces as Rahab the harlot shouts out, Parley. As she shouts out, now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have shown you hesed, that you also will show me hesed. That you will show me the kindness and mercy of the God of Yahweh. And so what Rahab does at this moment is that in faith, she throws herself and her family on the mercy of God. She casts herself wholly upon the steadfast covenantal faithfulness and love of a God who gave a promise to Abraham that through him and through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in response, the two spies say to Rahab, Hesed for Hesed, our lives for your lives, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will show Hesed and faithfully faithfulness to you. Our life for yours. Well, subsequently what happens is that the spies are indeed good on their promises and Rahab is good on her promises. And we're told that in chapter 6 that after the walls of Jericho fall down and the city is run over, here we pick up the story. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said to them, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young man who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and they put 
them outside the camp of Israel. Now, the reason why they would put them outside the camp of Israel is likely for two reasons. Number one, it's for ritual cleansing, as the Levitical Code would have required. And also, they're in the midst of a military conquest. You're not going to stick them in the middle of the camp for fear that they're going to turn against you at this moment. So they're put outside the camp. However, they are then brought inside the camp. Here's what happens. And so they burn the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And all the commentators, when they note the phrase that's particularly used here, they indicate that what Rahab happens to her and her family is that she is incorporated into the people of God. She is not a second-class citizen. She is brought in as a full member of the people of God. And this becomes clear because there is something even greater that occurs to Rahab. You see, Rahab, the one who was the prostitute, becomes a princess. You see, Rahab, we are told, is that Rahab marries a man by the name of Salmon, or Salmon, depending upon how hungry you are. And she marries Salmon. You guys, this, this I didn't get that. So, okay. So Rahab marries Salmon. And Salmon takes Rahab, this woman who was strong and courageous in her faith, and Solomon takes Rahab to be his wife. Now, Solomon is the son of Nashon. See this confirmed in a couple places. And the book of Numbers is the key to understanding the identity of Nashon. Because 39 years earlier, right after the people of Israel were taken out of Egypt and God gave them instructions to to erect a temple, what happens is that Moses commanded the people of Israel 39 years before this event, says that Moses on that day had finished setting up the tabernacle and he had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and he had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils. And then the chiefs of Israel the heads of their father's household, who were chiefs over the tribes, who were over those who were enlisted, approached. So what's happened is that the tabernacle is being set up. And when the tabernacle is being set up, the chief of all the tribes of Israel's come to the tabernacle. And the very first who comes, the first chief of the chief tribe of Israel is Nashon. And here is what Nashon does. As a Nashon, he offered his offering on the first day, was Nashon the son of Aminabed of the tribe of Judah. And here is what Nashon offers. He was offering one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels. That would be four pounds, four ounces of silver. One silver basin that weighed approximately one pound and 12 ounces, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 
Both of them were full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. He also offered one golden dish of ten shekels, about four ounces of gold, that was also full of incense. Nashon offered one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering. He offered one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of a peace offering, two oxen, five ram, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Abinadab. And what happens is that the son of Nahab, of Nashon, the chief of the chief tribe of Israel, has a son whose name is Salmon, who marries Rahab. And Rahab literally goes from being a prostitute to becoming the princess of the tribe of Judah. But there is something even greater that occurs. Because you see, Salmon marries Rahab. And Solomon and Rahab have a son by the name of Boaz. And Boaz happens to marry a woman by the name of Ruth, if you know that story. And Ruth and Obed have a son who his name is Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of David, who becomes the king of Israel, who, for whom the covenant of God is expanded. And then David's great-great-great-grandchild is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the heir of the covenant promises. And what is incredible is that most families hide their hideous past. But the story of Jesus shows, in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, is that Jesus is not afraid to say, my great-great-grandmother, she was an Amorite and a whore, but the mercy of God is greater. What this means is that as the people of God, Never say, oh, that person, they are too far gone. They are too immoral. They are too surrounded by wickedness. They are too surrounded by corrupt people and in generations of evildoers. You see, because as the people of God, if you, as the people of God, you forsake the mission of God. You forsake the might of God. You forsake the mercy of God if you say, or you act like, or you subtly communicate, or you function in some way that says that the church is only for respectable, clean, upwardly mobile, middle-class people. It's like saying that the hospitals are only for doctors and nurses and x-ray machines and not for sick people. It's like saying that only morticians and coroners belong in morgues and not dead people. Who should be in the church but sinners who are throwing themselves in faith upon the mercy of Yahweh? It means that you and I, that we, that you should never think that you are better because you haven't done what someone else has done. It means you should never think that your status is higher, that you are more worthy than another who has cast themselves on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. The church that I was on staff of before coming to Cornerstone, there was a single mom in our church who was in her early 20s, and she had gotten pregnant as a teenager. She grew up in a Christian home, went to Christian school, and got pregnant as a 17-year-old. And she describes her experience, and she said that her experience was like she felt that wherever she walked, she felt like there was a scarlet letter that was on her chest. 
She felt like when she was around Christians, she was constantly judged as being a second-class citizen, as one who had irredeemably, irredeemably messed up her life. But she went on to say that in our church, she felt accepted, and she felt loved, and she felt that her dignity was upheld, and that the truth of the gospel was lived and practiced in the way that she was treated. And she was doing great. And she was in the situation that she was in, but she was finishing her school. She was working full time. She loved the Lord and she was living for Him. And as she was following Jesus ardently, she started dating another young man who was a college graduate who also grew up in the church. And he was a good guy, loved the Lord. You could say that he. Uh, was raised in a very sheltered existence. And his father, who was a leader in our church, started adamantly and publicly opposing his son, dating her or marrying her. And multiple times and in multiple settings, as people were seeking to engage with him, he said repeatedly, I did not raise my son to marry a whore, repeatedly. And the church, and the church leadership, beautifully rebuked him and did so publicly because of the public nature of his comments, rebuked him, defended her, and above all, upheld the truth and the application of the gospel. Because Scripture says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And writing to the church in Corinth, Paul then says this, And such were some of you, that what you were is not who you are at this moment in Christ Jesus. And such were some of you, but you were washed, You were sanctified. You were justified by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit and by the Spirit of our God. That may be who you were, but it is not who you are now in Christ Jesus. And if the blood of Jesus is sufficient to wash away your sins, it is sufficient to wash away another's. For if anyone is in Christ Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. For though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash you white as snow. Therefore, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn 
Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, is at the right hand of God. He is the one who is interceding for us. What is ultimately true? What is ultimately true is not what you think of you. And it is not what others think of you. And it is not even what you think others think of you. Let me take that a step further. What is ultimately true about another who is in Christ Jesus is not what you think of them and not what they think of them, but what what God says is true of them. For if you are in Christ Jesus, who you were is not who you are. So let us cast ourselves on the mercy of God, whose might is greater than any foe, whose majesty is over heaven and earth, and whose mission of good news reaches to the darkest and loneliest places on the face of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story of Rahab. The story of Rahab that reminds us that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. I thank you for the story of Rahab that reminds us that a relationship with you is not based upon our family upbringing. Our relationship with you is not based upon our heritage, our standing, our occupation, what we have done or what we have not done. But that a relationship with you is wholly based upon your mercy, your covenant mercy that you are faithful to show to generation to generation of people of every tribe, race, and nation who will turn and put their faith in Yahweh, the one who has sent Jesus Christ. Father, I do come before you today and I pray for those here who have not yet chosen who it is that they will serve. I pray for those who are here, who are raised in the church, who call themselves Christians, but outside of this hour, their lives look no different than anyone who is opposed to God. So, Lord, for all who call upon the name of Christ and profess that they believe in you, Lord, may we be a people who our belief turns into action and that our faith is demonstrated and lived in our life by the powerful working of your mercy and grace in us. And Father, I do also pray for my brothers and sisters and friends who are gathered here. For those who feel that the shame of their past and the guilt of their past will not let them go. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your grace through your word, that you will help us to see that the blood of Jesus is greater than all our sins. And that what is ultimately true is what you say we are in Christ Jesus. And so it is in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.